please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, beginning at verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He said to them, This is what is written, and so it must be. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look, I am sending you what my Father promised, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He led them out as far as the vicinity of Bethany. He lifted up His hands and blessed them. And while He was blessing them, He parted from them and was taken up into heaven. So they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple courts, praising and blessing God. Amen. This is the Gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, our risen and ascended Savior. There is a particular situation in life which has the potential to change people in an instant. It has the capability to take calm, peaceful, upstanding citizens and make them behave like raving lunatics. It has the potential to make even the most laid back and relaxed among us do things that we would never do. It affects people of all ages, men and women, Republicans and Democrats, young and old alike. What is that situation? Losing something. The peacefully sleeping infant who loses her pacifier can suddenly turn into a a raging midnight terror. The child who is trying to put together a puzzle or, or, or a Lego creation and can't find that last piece can turn into an unbearable monster. The pleasant enough young woman who loses her engagement ring can turn into a sobbing, inconsolable wreck. People have been known to tear apart homes and rooms looking for lost car keys. Losing something just changes us. It flips a switch. It can make us act like absolute lunatics. On That first Easter Sunday evening, the disciples thought they had lost something. Something precious. Something that was irreplaceable. Something that they couldn't live without. They thought they had lost Jesus. They thought that Jesus' enemies, the Jews, had succeeded and had had him murdered. And they wouldn't see him anymore. And they were partially right. Jesus' enemies did succeed in crucifying him. They did succeed in having his dead body sealed in a tomb. But that wasn't the end of the story, of course. Three days later, Jesus rose to life. Dead Jesus didn't stay dead. Lost Jesus did not stay lost. But even when Jesus appeared to his disciples in that locked upper room and showed them his hands and his side and ate ate fish with them, They still were terrified. They still thought they had seen a ghost. They didn't get it. They thought he was still lost. They were panicked. They were frantic. They were hysterical. They were sad. 
The worst part of it all, though, was that their faith in Jesus was shaken. They doubted whether he actually was who he claimed to be. And so Jesus sees their panicked expressions. He, he reads their hearts that are, are quaking with doubt and fear and worry. And he reminds them that he's not lost. And he tells them where they can find him. The first place Jesus directs his disciples to look for him is actually backwards. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Every word, every letter, every detail, every single story in the scriptures God gave us for one reason, and that is to point us to Jesus, to point sinners to their Savior. Every detail points to Jesus. He is the thin red line running throughout both Old and New Testaments. And with laser-like precision in the Old Testament, over the course of hundreds of years, God predicted exactly what would happen in the life of His Son hundreds of years before it ever happened. All the way back in Genesis 3, God promised to send a Savior who would crush the devil's power and death forever. Isaiah 7 tells us that this Savior would be born of a virgin. In Psalm 22, which David wrote 1,000 years before Jesus was born, we're, we're, we're given the very words that Jesus spoke from the cross from the depths of hell, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And thousands of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, before he was crucified and died, Job already knew what would happen three days later when he wrote, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. It was all there in black and white. Jesus would be born. Jesus would live. Jesus would die. Jesus would rise again. All there in the Old Testament Scriptures. And the disciples should have known this. They should have known exactly what was going to happen. They should have known that even though Jesus died, he wasn't lost. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And they couldn't. And neither can we. Neither can we find Jesus in the pages of Scripture, at least not by nature, because we are all born into this world with spiritual blindness. Specifically, we are blind to the eternal consequences of our sins. We don't understand the depth of our depravity. We don't understand by nature that we deserve to burn in hell for all eternity for the times we have disobeyed our God and rebelled against His will. We don't get that by nature, and therefore we try to minimize our sin and make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. But when we do that, when we minimize our sin, then we also are blind to, to God's grace. Then, then the message of Christ crucified makes no sense to us. If our sin isn't that bad, why in the world did the Son of God have to hang on a cross to pay for them? We're, we're blind to both ends of it, both both the law and the gospel, both sin and grace. And Jesus understood that too. And he didn't let it stand. He opened their eyes so they could understand the scriptures. That's a miracle. And only if we are given that miracle, that gift of enlightenment, uh, can we see what scripture says. Can we see Jesus in the pages of his word? If not, see this book just like so many people in our world do as an outdated and irrelevant book of myths and fairy tales. But by the very fact that you're here, 
You know that Jesus has opened your eyes too to see the Holy Scriptures, to understand them, to hear repentance and the forgiveness of sins which would be preached in Jesus' name to, to the ends of the earth and even our own corner of the earth right here at Risen Savior. Repentance and forgiveness. Those are the two dual operations that the Lord works on us to open our eyes to see and understand the Scriptures. Repentance. That operation where God stands us up before His holy law and He shows us exactly what we look like compared to His holiness. It's not a pleasant sight. It's not a pretty picture. The Lord tells us all the evil that we have done and all the good that we have failed to do. When He shows us that we don't even have a hint of the holiness that He demands. When He shows us that our sins truly have earned us an eternity of His punishment, we panic. We freak out. We know that we've lost the righteousness that God wanted us to have. That has to happen. That has to be the first operation that the Lord works on us. That we give up trying to please Him on our own and that we turn to Him with empty hands and and do nothing but plead for His mercy. Because when you plead for God's mercy, the most amazing thing happens. The the image in that mirror changes. No longer do we see our sinful, filthy, ugly selves, but instead we see the smiling face of Jesus. We see Him as the disciples did holding out the the nail-pierced hands and feet and saying, God has had mercy on you for my sake. I have taken away your sins. I have restored to you the righteousness that God demands in you. Those are the, the dual operations that Jesus works on us to open our eyes. That's how we Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Every single page pointing to our Lord and Savior, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of of sins. That's the first place that we continue to find the ascended Lord is in the, the pages of His Word. Take a step back for a second though. So in the Old Testament, God prophesied what the Savior would come to do. The, the very events in the life of Jesus. But those promises and those prophecies, they're empty without fulfillment. And like the proverbial tree that falls in the forest, if there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? If, if those prophet, prophecies are fulfilled, but no one is there to witness it, well, then how can anyone hear about it? So Jesus did validate His claim to be the Christ. He, through His words and His works, He proved that He was the promised Savior and His disciples were there to witness it. That's what he tells them. He says, you have been witnesses of these things. You have heard my sermons. You have seen me cast out demons. You have seen me perform all of these miracles. And now you are the very first people on earth to witness me after my resurrection. You have seen that my body is real, that I can eat fish with you. You have put your hands in my my hands and in my side. You are witnesses of these things. And that was the very message that Jesus told his disciples to share. To the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem. Now remember this, what does a witness do? A witness testifies to what they have seen and heard, no more and no less. In fact, 
the entire New Testament really is a living witness of Jesus, of who he is and what he came to do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really the only evidence we need to prove that Jesus is our Savior from sin. The disciples faithfully carried that message to the ends of the earth. You sitting here are proof of that. They carried that message far and wide, even giving up their lives to do so. But now it's our turn. Now we are the witnesses of what Jesus has done. There are a few things scarier than thinking about that, though, isn't it? To witness Jesus. To witness Christ crucified in a world that doesn't want to hear about Him. To proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in His name can be one of the most intimidating things that we ever confront in our lives. Because the devil wants it that way. The devil doesn't want this message to spread anywhere. He definitely doesn't want it to spread beyond these walls. He, he makes it seem like it's a, a job better done by someone else. Maybe, maybe if you're in the church council, maybe if you're a pastor, you can do this. But not, not you, not your regular, everyday Christian. He wants to make it seem like you're not smart enough to witness to Christ, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He wants you to be afraid of rejection. He wants you to be afraid of looking like a fool. He wants you to be afraid of being called a bigot or intolerant for proclaiming Christ crucified. Remember again, what does a witness do? You just testify to what you've seen and heard. It doesn't have to be clever. You don't need a theological degree to do it. You don't have to have a carefully formulated essay that you are going to preach. You don't have to be able to give a sermon. You don't have to even go to a perfect stranger and try to tell them about Jesus. There are people in your lives, I guarantee it, that need to hear about Him, that need to hear your witness, your testimony of what Jesus has done for them. The disciples carried out their mission. They carried this message far and wide, and we are reaping the benefits of how Jesus wants to work through us so that many more may repent and be forgiven. That's the second place we find our ascended Lord is on the lips of His witnesses. Lips like yours. Forty days after His ascension, Jesus appeared to His disciples many times. He was, he was coaching them. He was encouraging them. He was strengthening them for, for the mission that was to come. But at the end of that 40 days, the time came for Jesus to return to His rightful place at His Father's right hand in heaven. I think it's interesting where Jesus chose to return to his father. Luke tells us that they went out to Bethany, and in the book of Acts we're told that they went up on the Mount of Olives. So from the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have been able to look down on the high place of the temple. Remember what happened on the high place of the temple where the devil tried to bribe him into abandoning his mission in order to have power and authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. From that Mount of Olives, he, he could have looked down into the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus pleaded with his Father, Father, take this cup away from me, where then he was later betrayed and arrested and hauled off to be crucified. You see the significance that there is there? From the very place where it seemed like Jesus couldn't win and wouldn't win, he established once and for all that He is victorious. That He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He chose that place to prove that He has conquered sin, death, and the devil 
once and for all. But before he left, he left his church with one final gift. Luke tells us that he raised up his hands and he blessed them. This is not some empty gesture. By blessing his disciples, he's telling them, I am still going to be with you. I will never abandon you. I will not depart from you. I will be with you until the very end of the age. In fact, I think we can see something else here, that Jesus is effectively giving his church the blessings of peace and forgiveness and joy. Those disciples could look at those nail-marked hands and see, yes, my forgiveness has been purchased. Yes, I am right with God because of what Jesus has done. And it's interesting here in the text that Jesus doesn't stop blessing them even as he's ascending into the cloud. Which means that it's a perpetual blessing, an ongoing blessing. It doesn't end. It means that Jesus, when he left this world, he was blessing us. When he returns in glory, it will be a blessing to us as he takes us to heaven. And even now, he is holding his mighty hands over us, blessing us with his forgiveness, his peace, his love, his guidance, and his protection. And with that, He parted from them and he ascended into the cloud and they wouldn't see him again. What kind of reaction would you expect from the disciples having seen their Savior with their own eyes for the last time? Wouldn't you expect them to be sad? Wouldn't you expect tears to be streaming down their faces? I mean, when, when we have a family reunion and then everyone has to part again, isn't that sad? Or even... More difficult when we have to stand at the graveside of someone we love and say goodbye. That's sad. Uh, On Easter evening, the disciples were distraught. They were inconsolable when they thought they had lost Jesus, but now they really were losing Him to their physical sight. They wouldn't walk with Him or talk with Him or eat another meal with Him until He returned in glory. We would expect them to be sad. We would expect them to be mourning. But what do we see? The exact opposite. They worshipped him and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What could account for this sudden change in emotion on the part of the disciples? Well, they finally got it. They finally understood why Jesus had to suffer and die and rise again. They finally understood he had to do that if they were to be saved. They finally understood that Jesus had never come to establish an earthly kingdom, but that now he is ruling through through his gospel in the hearts of his people. They rejoiced in the fact that wherever two or three come together in Jesus' name, there he is. He's here with us right now. Which means that even as Jesus left this earth, he's, he's actually closer to us now than while he walked on this earth. According to latest statistics there, something like three and a half billion Christians of various denominations in the world. Imagine if Jesus was still here and he set up shop in Jerusalem. And imagine you had to go there to talk to him, to ask him something, ask him for something. And so you decide to go there, but you have to take a ticket, and your ticket is 3.5 billion. You know, you have to wait for Jesus to be able to see you. But now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, he is present wherever his word and sacraments are. We don't have to take a ticket. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to see him. He is here. 
He is here present when a man or woman or a child is baptized with water and the Word. He is here to offer us His true body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and the strengthening of our faith. He is here when you hear the words of absolution or when the Gospel is proclaimed. Yes, I know, you just hear a man. But the message is that of our risen and ascended Lord. Jesus is as close to you as your Bible is. His ear is as close to you as your prayers and He promises to hear and answer. Jesus isn't lost. He's still blessing us through His Word, through His presence and Word and sacrament. Losing something can change a person. It can, it can make a, a perfectly sane individual behave in lunatic ways. On ascension, it might seem like we have lost our Savior, like He ascended into the clouds never to be seen again, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Jesus isn't lost. He's exactly where He needs to be. He is, he is reigning at His Father's right hand, ruling everything for the good of the church. So the next time that you find that lost pacifier or those lost keys or that la- lost Lego piece, thank God that He has opened your eyes to find your ascended Lord in the pages of His Word and the lips of His witnesses and in the joy of His blessing. Amen.